Okay. Hello, Andrew. Hello. How are you doing today? It's the middle of the workday, so I'm stressed out, anxious. How are you? That's perfect. That's yeah. um, that's exactly what <laughs> what I how I want someone to be feeling when I'm when I'm interviewing them. Music is stressful. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> music is stressful and hostile, um, which I think leads me into why. Obviously, you're a longtime friend of the blog, so. <laughs> Um, Big fan. Yeah. And so I wanted to talk to you about your experience with your project, which I think a lot of a lot of that was kind of prescient. I don't know what the right word is, but a lot of your experiences you. with like uh, identity politics and just like a general um, increasing difficulty towards experimental music. Um, I think kind of really well prepared you for the uh, the demolition of the culture in the United States, as it Boy, were. Boy, did it. Yeah, <laughs> it's a fair statement. You know, it was funny, too, because I was never trying to be heard that much. I had a long time horizon with what I was doing, and nonetheless, I kept getting disappointed. Well, I think the... I think a lot of the lessons that you have learned and instilled upon me have, especially around the long time horizon thing, like if you think about how cool a lot of the things people are making now and the idea that it has to be appreciated and there has to be external validation at the exact moment that you create something um, in order for it to be great, that how there's like, there's kind of a disconnect there. And a lot of people... I mean, I don't think you have to die for people to listen to your things, hopefully, but I think there's a lot of things that aren't really appreciated until um, decades after someone creates them. Um, and I think a lot of your work with Sonic Multiplicities is just now starting to be relevant because there's all these conversations about AI and music. So I think I'm bad at talking about Sonic Multiplicities. Would you want to, to describe it for... Um, for maybe someone who's not a tech genius. I can do that. So Sonic Multiplicities is kind of a response to a criticism that I first started having about music, the study of it, and also the music industry um, around the time I was in music school at Indiana University. And it's taken many forms since its inception, but there were a lot of things happening with me kind of at the same time that kind of all coalesced into this, which was that I came into school having certain capabilities in programming and in systems building that many of my peers didn't have. And so people would often come to me with like strange requests. And so I was in a band, um, actually a couple bands in college at that time. And Sonic Multiplicities got start from a strange request where I was being asked to play an instrument that I couldn't play for a show. I was being requested as a bassist, even though I can't play bass. That's how desperate they were. And, um, you know, for me at the time, when I was first kind of coming up with this idea, the question I was trying to answer was, can I give a program reliable rhythm because I'm a drummer, so I can do that, but I couldn't guarantee I'd play the right notes. So if I knew I could give it good rhythm, would software be able to help me fix my notes that I was playing in real time for this concert? 
And um, that's kind of how it all got started. I was looking at a way to use software to solve problems in music and audio that didn't really have a solution yet. Um, Auto-tune existed, but as T-Pain taught us, that sounds a certain way, and it's hard to extrapolate that into a live setting. So my approach was to use this programming language called Super Collider. And it's a, it's like a really cool kind of programming language framework for systems that need real-time audio. And it's been used for research. It's been used for all sorts of things. But very infrequently has it been used to fake talent, like I was trying to do with it. Um, but then, of course, the drummer of that same band ended up dropping out too. They canceled the show that was going to happen. So I ended up never using it. Then fast forward a year, I get really into the music of Burial. And Burial was well known for making very passionate, romantic sounding lyrics out of acapellas using um, Soundforge. And I was really interested by that question. Again, can I use software to take an acapella sample like Burial did and generate new lyrics from uh, one set of lyrics being sung by somebody. And so I dragged up that old code that I used to fix my bass playing. And I discovered I could apply the same basic techniques um, to that problem. And I was successful. And I ended up using it for many years to make electronic music in a project called CPU God. And once again, I was sitting around getting stoned one day and I was like, can I take this approach and use AI so I don't have to do anything? And that's where Sonic Multiplicities kind of first got born. So I dragged out that base I was using originally to work on the code and I worked on it. And to my stunning surprise, as long as you go into this problem with like certain naivety, it's actually really easy to solve this problem. So I ended up taking the same approach in understanding a real-time performer's uh, kinds of musical choices and then attached an AI engine to it. And that's Sonic Multiplicities today. It's solving the problem of AI and software not being used in the right way to make music. And so what it's now become is a project where we use essentially the weapons of war. Today's 21st century technologies, big data, artificial intelligence, internet of things, sensors, and instead of using them today in very stupid ways, in very repeatable ways, which is kind of the MO today, we try to envision a brand new musical approach, a brand new way to make music that makes music that no one's really heard anything like it before. Because that's really what the power is in these technologies, is extrapolating new modes of creativity, new outcomes that humans couldn't do themselves. So that, that's really what Sonic Multiplicities is in essence. It's taking a solo musician's real-time improvisations or, or compositions and applying a friendly AI to it in real time to turn that into something bigger and more interesting than they could ever create by themselves. So how long had you been doing it before you had any musicians play with the software? It's a good question. I was able to get my friend Garrett Semelink to try it out with me almost immediately because back then it wasn't hard to convince somebody, hey, I've got this weird thing with AI. 
do you want to be the first person to ever try it? And I had tried it on my own voice. I tried it on, you know, this electric bass I had, and I was pretty sure there was something to it. And then when I brought Garrett over for a weekend to try it out, who was studying with me, a good friend of mine at IU, studying violin performance, we quickly found out that it was a lot more substantial than we had even anticipated, that the uh, beginning stages of this AI sounded very curious, very eager for more data. It was really interesting. It was sort of accidental, the way that it all worked out, but... Yeah, I was able to convince someone almost a week after I finished that work to come by and try it with me. And so, did what this was part of a project for college as well, wasn't it? Eventually, Garrett and I had enough good experiences um, with SM that sonic multiplicities that we were able to. Um, convince the violin professor that was um, working with Garrett to be able to use this technology in um, his senior recital. So Garrett ended up having to graduate by playing a piece I had written uh, for the Sonic Multiplicities platform. So yes, at that point in time, I did actually start working on it officially in my music composition classes. And um, I ran into some pushback there were some concerns that this wasn't actually music. Um, as uh, Dave Zube, who I don't mind naming here, uh, said, this is a science experiment. This is not real music composition. I then ran into the same problem for my senior project myself in the recording arts department, where apparently uh, because I didn't make the mixing decisions, but my AI did, it wasn't in the spirit of my final project. So I ended up getting a C even though I was like quite a good student and didn't typically get C's, especially in the audio classes, right? So I ran into some pushback almost right away trying to integrate this stuff, which I thought was very interesting and had a lot of fertility for exploration uh, into academia, which it gave me pause. I went, huh, that's weird. This is supposed to be a cool new thing, but... My TA called it evil. My professor called it a science experiment. And I was very sure that not since Giannis Zanakis was at the IU composition program had anything so substantial been made within the confines of that campus. So it's, it was kind of my first sort of red pilling in the music industry and then how music is studied and proliferated, it gave me a bad taste in my mouth almost right away. Well, that kind of leads to your general vibes about, I'm not a musician, um, but you have, um, I guess, a strong stance against DAWs. Is that how people say it? Or DAW, DAW, uh, sure. Um, And it's interesting what you were saying that approved programming is considered fine to use, but a new programming software is not, not is considered that th- th- might be more, more thought or is probably more thoughtful and more kind to the musician than the presets that people are using. Um, That's a good I point. Think a lot of what you talk about is 
people should be using computers to challenge themselves with music and art instead of make it easier. And I think what we're seeing now with just how awful pop music, I guess, is a good example, is that what the conclusion of people using music to kind of cheat instead of using it in a way to collaborate with the computer. And now there's so much discourse about AI taking people's jobs. I think what you're, what you've been doing is putting you like way far ahead of everyone else because, um, I mean, the, the Garrett that you work with and other musicians enjoy playing with it. And right. they, it, and there's also, I don't think there's too much that encourages people to, to do improv, um, which I don't know. I mean, you can probably speak to it more than, than me, but do you want to talk about, yeah, your thoughts on using technology for, I guess, for good versus evil and why some people think the stuff that's for good is actually evil when it's not like the teacher you mentioned thinking it was evil when it's clearly like a very wholesome project. He was just maybe a little bit, uh, Short-sighted? I don't know what the word is. Well, she was um, a very traditional she, uh, lady. She um, was a good composer. Right? <laughs> well, she was really manlike in many ways. And um, this was in one way that she didn't take uh, kindly to my approach, but she loved how it all sounded. And that was the funny thing about it, was that I had played a recording of something I had done previously and she was blown away by him, so excited to work with me. And then when I told her about how it was made, the whole attitude changed. <laughs> so I think that is really indicative of what the problem is. So uh, I had been learning about audio technology and its history for a couple of years before I started doing SM. And something I had seen as a kind of a pattern was that each time new media technology came out, especially around music, it led to some sort of innovation in how music ended up getting made initially from the conception. And that um, was something that started to kind of fall off the radar, I would say, in a big way when digital audio started to happen and it left the confines of CDs and went into personal computers. And at that point in time, um, I saw the value of using DAW programs like Pro Tools and stuff like that to mix and master audio in a way that was very similar to how analog boards were used to do it all before. But I didn't see a lot of value, and I still don't, in making music with them. And that's the unfortunate outcome that has happened over the past um, couple of decades, is that the audio engineers kind of stopped being the main focus of these tools, and it ended up being songwriters and producers and this is the problem with that. As Milford Graves has shown us, um, nothing in music naturally done is made to a click track, to a tempo grid. Rhythm is a natural thing. There's sort of a, a pocket, right? There's, there's these sort of humanistic qualities to rhythm that are really important. Um, and that was my first inkling that there was something being lost in translation between the nerds that wrote this software and the people who were using it. Um, 
you know, frankly, I like to say that nerds ruined all the arts, but they destroyed music first. And it's because the people who made the software, maybe they had audio engineering expertise, but they definitely didn't have music making expertise. So, you know, I was seeing this happening all around me in school. I was seeing people make the same stuff over and over again, even though different people were making it. And I started seeing all this uniformity in the DAWs I was using in terms of any project I worked on looked and sounded the same. And I couldn't work out why until I started making my own tools to make music. And I realized how much different things can be and how, how much your mind opens up to uh, an organic music making process when you're not wholly dependent on like DAW click tracks and making music asynchronously. I've never been a fan of that. I come from free jazz. That's what I was really big on before college. And I was, you know, really hanging out in the downtown music scene in New York where a lot of free form and kind of free improv music making was the standard. And I saw it work everywhere from punk music to classical music to steady jazz to country, you know, everything imaginable under the sun. I saw it get made in these are really organic ways by expert musicians. And I was thinking to myself, what if we started everything off from the understanding that that kind of level of music making had to be used to do anything with computers? Like, what if that was the, the level of expertise you had to reach? that you had to be a master at something that you could play in order to use a computer um, and actually have it expand your possibilities and make you come up with new ideas. So that was kind of my foray into that world. I really wasn't a big fan of like the current electroacoustic music. I wasn't impressed with the laptop orchestras that were coming out. I was thinking like, what if we just destroy the entire paradigm and start over again from the point of view that music should be live and organic and not have to do anything to it after the fact to make it ready to listen to? Um, so SM was also a way for me to try that out. And um, that's definitely where I think we've made the biggest inroads is in allowing people to not even touch a DAW to make extremely serviceable yet very sometimes frightening, sometimes intense, sometimes extreme music, all on their own. I think that's a better way forward for us. That's something that you and I have talked about a lot is, um, I guess, how technology has affected music and like the difference between music products and actual music. And what you're describing is... Um, yeah, like through history, the technology ended up influencing the technology used to make the products has now influenced the music, um, which was meant to be live and organic. And there's also been a push away from that with like shutting down live performance and pushing towards live streams and things sure. like that. Um, what do you like? What would you say are the main? Um, I guess the main technologies that influenced music, like, would you say they were like CDs, vinyl, um, and how, I guess, how do you look at that like over time? Because it does seem like it dead ended, dead ended at Dawes. I'm not sure mm -hmm. if that's accurate. It does seem like, I'm not really sure what's going to happen now. And then, yeah, I'm curious how you tie in the different technologies and how they affected music and 
how there haven't been any new genres right. really created in our lifetime, I would say. Well, that's fair because I think, and I'll get to the genre thing at the end, because I think that what's important to remember about music is that it's so pedestrian because it's so, so important to our early evolution as humans. And so uh, it's a technology, right? But it's a really, really original kind of prehistoric technology. And so that is why it needs to be live in real time. And when you start out at the beginning of the 20th century, early, uh, rather late 19th century, you're seeing radio coming about for the first time. And that led to some pretty important developments right away in the form of like music concrete and stuff like that. That's, that was a sort of a, an early electronic music practice that used acoustic recordings and tapes to meld together to make like new soundscapes. And in the early teens and 20s, that was... That was pretty remarkable and interesting. And some of those pieces are great. Um, but yeah, that was like the beginning, I think. Um, even before we talk about like the gramophone and recording mediums, distribution mediums were really the first things that got used in an innovative way because that's what led to things like Earcom getting set up and that's where people could start experimenting with sound. What's that? Earcom is the, uh, it's like an audio and music research place that started in France and a lot of important electronic composers like Stockhausen used to study and work there. Um, and so that formed, I think, the beginnings of the, you know, use of music and audio technology to change creatively how people made music. You go into vinyl records and tapes, you start seeing the use of um, vinyl and live performances, a.k.a. DJing. You start to see sampling coming from the tapes because everybody was being encouraged to record tapes off the radio and off vinyl records to make mixes for their friends. So music technology and its impacts on music making have always been very pedestrian, low level, kind of like blue collar. And um, the results of it were like massive steps forward in music. When you come to today, there's such a... Um, user experience level that has to be met in the DAW world, in the um, online streaming world, that there really isn't any room for people to experiment and to try new things. It's been locked down so heavily because of the music industry's general kind of skittishness about intellectual property, and they still haven't learned the lessons from Napster. So I think what that's led us to is a place where no big movement forward happened in our lifetimes, really, in like the millennial Gen Z lifetime, you have disco and electronic music coming out in the 70s and early 80s because of the mass manufacturing of vinyl. And then you've got sampling coming out and then hip hop happens. This is all our parents' generation. If you're under 45, you haven't lived through a massive movement forward in music ever. And don't try to tell me that Skrillex is some big movement forward. Don't tell me the drop is a big thing or you know, whatever, um, SoundCloud rap. No, I'm talking like a completely new paradigm of music making. It hasn't happened yet. Maybe the closest that we got in recent years is people using the, uh, I think the Apex devices that you could use to make um, kind of like chopped and screwed music or like um, ghetto tech music and stuff like that. The people coming out of Chicago, like DJ Rashad, they use this device to kind of make music in this kind of disjointed way 
but it doesn't really represent a full paradigm shift or a major step forward in terms of how music can be made. And especially collaboration has suffered the most. And that's a big problem because with that, we're losing a fundamental driver of this technology of music, which is human interaction, which I think brings us to today where uh, human interaction has been decimated and so has popular music. Um, it feels like a silo that all these mainstream music producers live in. Um, and they don't even think about the listeners or the people and the effects, or maybe they do. And that I think is the open question that you explored kind of with like Jay Dyer and stuff like that. And I think he's probably a better person to speak to that. But even with all that craziness happening in the sixties and the seventies, the eighties, uh, there was always incredible music being made independently and pushing things forward. Today, there's amazing music getting made. We're living through a golden age, in fact. But the problem is it's extremely hard to find it, engage with it, communicate about it. And that hasn't changed at all. In fact, it's gotten a lot worse, despite Bandcamp Friday and all these ridiculous things that have tried to come out to change that. Um, Epic Games is not going to be able to fix Bandcamp's biggest problem, which is that it doesn't give us a community. And that's what music needs right now the most. My proposal is to change that by introducing it in a new way with this technology. Well, you're wrong. It gives us a community tab, which is <laughs> all, we, all we really need. <laughs> all we deserve, maybe. Perhaps. We got the government we deserve. I guess we get the band camp we deserve, too. Yeah. Um, I, I know a lot of people really... For me, working in music for so long, I would go to a lot of experimental shows just because that's what everyone else was going to. And I would kind of like suffer through it and be like, oh, God, I hate this so much. But I was trying. Like I was trying to be open-minded. I was trying to get it. And it honestly wasn't until like you started playing like free jazz or sonic multiplicities and things like that for me that I really got um, how this stuff can like expand people's consciousness and in a really significant way. Um, and then it just makes me think about like how through my whole life, even in like cultured circles, there's always been this like, oh, I listen to anything except for free jazz and like just things like that that are kind of just, I don't know, you, you talking about Mulford Graves and things being organic and it's making me think maybe that maybe that's the disconnect between experimental music that people that they they can tolerate is the more like improvisational and more organic versus if someone's making something that's experimental that's like rooted and just doesn't have soul I don't know I'm not sure I I I just thought about that for the first time that I was like wondering like what's the difference between um someone playing like a droney guitar for like an hour and like something that you know, someone could consider to be just noise as well, but it's not like, I don't know. And then that makes me think about the whole like different Hertz tunings and things like that. And Hmm. just, I mean, just music overall being very healing and helping people get, I guess, see things. And that, I mean, that could be why 
Because the experimental community, I think, has had the worst of it all from, you know, the like the the backlash since 2020 with either like cancel culture, as it were, or um, just a lot of the indie venues shutting down. Now it's like the places that would have opened their doors to having small shows and just really allowing people to just really explore different things. They're, they're just getting so, so much more rare, um, which is why I think it's great that we've been able to have little tiny shows out here. Um, that's been really lovely, but I think it is, that's like the biggest hurdle for all of this is decentralization and yet still like connecting people um, that maybe don't know they should care about it. You have to connect not just the listeners and the fans, you have to connect the musicians too. Mm -hmm. And that's the big problem. Um, Experimental music, I think in general, was trending towards this kind of silo nature. But, you know, the reason why I think a lot of times like a droney guitar doesn't sometimes come across as well for people is because it's not, and I repeat, it's not an innovative new music making form because drones have been around since really the beginning of music. Uh, early music really did use this kind of sound a lot. And the means that they used to make it were sometimes fully natural and sometimes they were technological. And so using a new set of tools to make sounds that and, and to explore musical ideas that haven't yet been able to be explored in that medium doesn't really, to me, suffice. Because it really what you're doing is you're bringing, in many ways, um, an improper tool you know, to the, it's like you bring the, the knife to the gunfight or whatever. Right. And it, it's going to cause problems and impose limitations because most of the drone music made in the early days um, of human history were done in large groups, not by yourself. And so I think that's where kind of like the noodly kind of self-masturbatory kind of sound from the drone guitar player people kind of comes from. And it's not totally unreasonable the um the fact is that free jazz and the kind of avant-garde that came out of modal jazz was something that came about from an extremely strong community and it came from mostly black people's ability to self-organize in profoundly new and more powerful ways and so you know Combined with that is the acknowledgement that um, you didn't have to really start from the same tradition when you're that strongly linked together. You can use new ways to musically communicate with one another. And that was an insight that led to people discovering how freeing and also how, um, how much of a transcendental experience playing a horn in that manner can be. Because I'm not just a drummer, I also can play woodwinds. And something that I know is that playing in the style of people like Ornette Coleman, uh, Anthony Braxton, and all that, it can lead you to many of the same kind of personal experiences that like meditation and even psychedelic drugs can get you to. And to me, that's a much more interesting kind of siloed approach to music making is to embed that outcome into the process and to give everybody a jazz-like environment to explore it within. 
to me, that signals kind of a change in consciousness. And it also, I think, readily prepared us for a world like ours now where we're being bombarded with media and it's distracting us. And so here was this tool that black people came up with um, despite all their challenges socially in the 20th century that allowed people of all types to transcend past the sort of constructed narrative and media environment that we all live in today. And if only we had had more of that in the 80s instead of this pivot to Kenny G, maybe we would have a far better world today. And I think, um, you know, it even comes down to the fact that they have Kenny G doing these contests where he holds a high E on the soprano saxophone for like hours on end in this weird kind of way of offsetting all the gains that free jazz gave us um, in the 70s and even some of the 80s. And so now it's a very disjointed world and it's held together by a couple pieces of like academia. And that's also where the experimental music world in general has gone. And that's, I think, why they bear so much of the brunt is because they started relying on other people to do their work for them. It wasn't like Sun Ra, where he did all the work and he barely slept and he made all the album covers himself and he played like crazy. No. Now, today's experimental musicians live with a certain degree of comfort and they do it because uh, they've leveraged their identities in a way to get grant money. The state was funding a lot of this stuff. And so, of course, when the state mandated everything gets shut down, experimental music got killed by that. And so did the people who were sort of holding that scene together. Folks like Zorn, who, you know, run a nonprofit venue and a nonprofit label, uh, which has been essential to experimental musicians making headways. Now, suddenly, these are at the same behest as the rest of the music community, even though the listener base is so small. It killed the culture, not just the consumer market for it. And that's going to be very hard for us all to recover from. You know, I was not getting grants ever during this time. When I was trying to get help doing Sonic Multiplicities in New York, I kept not being able to get past this fact that I'm a white person who's a male, uh, Jewish. Nothing's wrong with me, really. I, I'm not gay. Uh, my dad didn't die. I'm not in a wheelchair. So, like, I was never given the opportunities to participate in that system um, because essentially right af after college, woke started happening and it cut me off from all of those opportunities anyway. And that's been a blessing in disguise over the years because it meant I never had help and I was always ready for the contingencies that laid ahead. Uh, they were catching a lot of people off guard, but because of how I was doing things, it wasn't really hurting me quite the same way. And I guess in a way I'm very lucky about that. Yeah, I think that's the largest takeaway from all of this is how important self-reliance is, um, especially with your art. And I'm writing about the, the next, the post that I'm working on for this week is about state funding specifically with Canada. And I definitely, I obviously understand why people want the arts funded. I mean, I think that's, it's reasonable because it's very important. 
Um, but I think what also is so important to see is even if it appears to align with your goals, it's, it's temporary and it's a coincidence and it always will align with the goals of the state. And those have proven to not be, uh, benevolent. Is that the right word? <laughs> I would say they're almost malevolent, if not, um, accidentally. So I think they're intentionally. So, yeah. So I think that's why from starting this project there there's there just seem to be a lot of alignment with people who are like more recently canceled and the people that have just been keeping their head down the whole time and just doing their own thing because they already they already figured this out that no one was going to help them um for different reasons but still that is the i think the common thread that kind of prepared some people for this landscape more than others um and i think it's just so important to not um I guess judge your work based on outside validation. Um, and I, it's hard to get to that point. And I think we're, we're trained or maybe a little brainwashed into thinking that our, our worth is equal to, you know, how many likes we get or how many views we get or whatever. But, um, it doesn't mean you're not doing something important and, um, yeah. You know, seeing my friends' smiles on their faces playing SM was the validation I needed. When we started doing video and we started to notice all the faces people were making um, and how thrilling it is to see these things live in a concert-like setting, that's all the validation I needed. And I think, you know, that's one way that we can get past this is to think more about other musicians while we do this stuff is... Not so much staying in our little silos and our memory holes, but being willing to bring other people in, even if it sort of gets rid of some of your autonomy, it gives you something so much more valuable, which is that validation, which can transcend, in my view, anything like listen counts and play counts and money being made. Because when musicians kind of tune into this world I've made for them and for the first time they realize the power that's in their hands, it's an indescribable experience. It's really profound watching people go from utter confusion and terror, which is usually how it starts, to an incredibly uh, dynamic and fluid and fun place, which is often how people get to it within a month after starting or so. Um and it's been now tried with so many different instruments and competency levels and um, experiences with improv in the past that um, I'm very convinced that moving forward, we need to start seeking validation from the other musicians in your world and not from the anonymous play counts coming from Spotify. Because, of course, that is the only validation seeking tool that's out there now is streaming services, but the conditions under which they constrain not only music making, but also music listening means that their opinion is pretty much invalid, especially for me. Um, I'm much more interested in seeing how the algorithm seems to want to discourage the play of my music. To me, that is actually a much bigger feeling of gratification than knowing that a hundred random people that don't have any idea what this music is and how it was made heard it on Spotify. Big deal. I mean, if it was a hundred thousand, that might be different, but they're never going to give me that. Yeah, I know that's right. 
it does kind of bring it all back to how so many restrictions imposed upon music, like release dates and tracks and lengths of albums and stuff is kind of um, just arbitrary. And, and then Spotify is kind of just continuing that because it's like, you have to, you have to do single. It can't be too long. You can't have a picture of Mark Zuckerberg um, as your album artwork, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I wanted, I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but I wanted to talk to you about your most recent track that is coming out. Um, speaking of arbitrary, uh, formats of music, sure. um, but you have a live recording, um, coming out on Friday, February 3rd, that was recorded here. Yes. And I was wondering if you wanted to talk about that and then also how the system has changed since you moved from Brooklyn to Tennessee. Oh, that's a great question too. I can get into that. Um, so the new release is called Delegated Powers, Crimes Committed. It's sort of a, an expose, I guess, of the various conditions that we were all subjected to during the 2020 lockdowns. And we went so far as to change some of the data that we grabbed to seed the music system uh, to match kind of COVID-related um, topics. And so we seeded the music system this time with like COVID death numbers for our area, infection rates, vaccination figures. Um, and, you know, it was awesome to see because finally we have our own performance space that can use a high quality PA system to do sound and we have a good kind of seating area. So we can now do the things that I could never do in New York, which is give like an actual concert. And so that's what we did um, with this new release. And we recorded it directly to disc, no edits, no mixing, no changing of the musical material, um, just exactly what everybody in the crowd heard that night. We even left in the applause at the end uh, to give homage to classical recordings and how that stuff works. And so, yeah, that's going to be coming out on Friday. And to us, it represents Sonic Multiplicities 4.0 because I did the work uh, to kind of get ready for those new data points that we captured and one of the big changes was that um, leaving the Northeast meant that the weather information that we always were seeding the system with also changed, which was a pretty interesting outcome. We also made the decision to actually retrain the system. So we've now selectively removed um, you know, about a third of the audio that was in the training data. And this gave us the outcome of actually having a more infantile and more kind of curious AI. Um, and now that we've learned so much about doing this for the last 11 years, uh, we've been able to kind of hone how best we should be storing and archiving music performances we do and how we can train up the system on those um, in real time. And so that's all now going to be heard on this new recording. And I'm really excited about it because I think it's a level of musical maturity that we've not yet reached until now. And, um, you know, nothing else has really changed about how we do things. It's just an example of what seeing this music in person is like, but it will still never really quite capture the feeling of being there live in person, which I think is important uh, to fully understand what it's all about. But I think it gives you a good idea of what that experience is like. And it definitely gives it a nice and friendly, headphone friendly and speaker friendly way to hear it uh, at home. 
And, you know, it's all in the effort to make sure that people know this exists and that if they would like to engage with big data and AI and network streaming technologies without us spying on you or selling your data to advertisers or, um, you know, making use of this information in some sort of nefarious way, we instead want to give this to you to white pill you on the future and get your hopes up and to remind you that music is a beautiful thing that happens in the moment. And no matter how well our recordings come out, I never want them to overshadow the value of doing it live. And the uh, famous words of Bill O'Reilly, fuck it, you have to do it live. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't know that. You said that. Well, if you go to um, multiply.city, M-U-L-T-I-P-L-I dot city, you know, it's multiplicity, right? But with a dot. No one knows how to spell that, though, is what you forget. <laughs> Nothing quite wrong with that. Again, we want people who can spell it to know how to get there. <laughs> and that, that's the most important thing, is that if you can spell the damn word, you can access this music for free. And we release it on a podcast format. So you can already check out this new recording we've done um, from that feed. If you'd like to be spied on and waste your money, feel free to wait till Bandcamp Friday or, uh, you know, that's where it'll be also available on Apple Music and Spotify and all those places. But if you really want me to feel great, you'll get that podcast feed and you'll download the episode in a decentralized way and listen to it on your own time and your own system outside the confines of a streaming service. Nice. Well, yeah, this was very, uh, very inspirational. Thank you. I had fun. New track. I love, um, yeah, everything y'all are doing is very cool. And I think a lot of the people that read the blog will be interested in it as well. So thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me. <laughs> Thanks, Camelia. Um, fuck the music industry. Do it yourself. I know, that's right. Okay, well, I'll, I'll see you later. Bye. Bye.